Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Tyson Yunkaporta. Hi, Jim. It's good to be here. Hey, it's great to have you here. It really is. Really enjoyed reading your book and I'm looking very much forward to talking to you. Tyson is an academic, an arts critic, and a researcher who is a member of the Appalachian clan of Australian Aboriginal people in the far north of Queensland. He carves traditional tools and weapons, also works as a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledge at Deakin University in Melbourne. He lives in Melbourne. We're going to dig in into some detail into his remarkable new book called Sand Talk. This is a book I normally wouldn't have stumbled across, but somehow I did. And as I was reading it, I was going, wow, this book, even though it comes from a lens that is so different from anything I've ever been exposed to before, comes up with some conclusions and perspectives on the nature of reality and the nature of our civilization that I found just uncannily similar to some of the things myself and other people are working on. And I hope you all will enjoy this journey. And it will be quite a journey. This is a book of incredible richness. Again, it's called Sand Talk. And as always, there'll be a link to the book on the episode page for this podcast at jimrutshow.com. So, so often we read about peoples and cultures around the world from the Western reductionist scientific perspective, you know, here are the kinship rules. Here's, you know, how they, you know, extracted energy from the system, et cetera, sort of classic cultural anthropology. Tyson makes what to my mind is an amazing and audacious move. And essentially, while we'll be learning a fair amount about indigenous culture, what he's really doing is looking back out at the wider world using an indigenous lens. Is that fair? You think that's a good way to describe what you're doing? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. That's a really good way of saying it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complexity lens, you know? Um, and that's, I think, complexity theory is a really good metaphor that, you know, aligns quite well with the lens that we're looking through here. Indeed. In fact, I was so taken by, you know, people listening to the show know I'm a complexitorian, if there is such a thing. And uh, I was very taken with the way you wove complexity into the story in a very natural way. And I got curious. So I had to do the search. I'm a bit of a numbers nerd. Are you 10 hours? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Though in this case, it was more like 12. The word complex or complexity appeared 77 times in your book. You probably yeah. didn't even know that. I did not know that. <laughs> Before we hop in, let's talk a little bit about you know, some of the definitions and, and a tool that you described, which I thought was very interesting. You basically had the concept of two hands, one with fingers held together horizontally and the other hand held up vertically with the fingers apart. Could you maybe frame that a little bit as sort of a framework, which I found to be useful? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's kind of uh, what you described already. It's, um, I mean, so often when... when you know, any knowledge of indigenous cultures is always viewed through that uh, Western lens. So, you know, I, I sort of worked that into a hand gesture because as with most of the book, I tried to, uh, 
well, I, I mean, I did express all of the knowledge first in nonverbal forms, you know, through traditional carvings and, you know, lots of different practices. And one of those ideas was just in a hand gesture, which also came out as a symbol, a visual symbol. But yeah, so it's got a closed hand that's like reading a book. And then it's got a spread open hand like, you know, those rock art hand stencil paintings you might have seen in caves around the world, you know. So usually we're kind of trying to view that open hand, you know, through the closed hand of the book, you know, and you don't really see it. You just see the edges of it, just the tips of the fingers. But if you turn around the other way and you look at the closed hand through the open hand, it's um, you get a lot more clarity and interesting perspective. So I, I kind of like to do that little bit of re a reversal. A lot of my work is kind of reverse anthropology, I guess you might call it, and, and it's really cheeky. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I mean, it really just skates along the edge of pop science. In fact, I think you could probably call it pop science, the book, more than serious scholarship, you know. And a lot of my work is like that just because I, I just like having a laugh most of the time. Yeah, I, I think that's a good term, reverse anthropology. I also found it kind of this beautiful riff and kind of like weaving, right? It goes here, it goes there, it comes back, but it makes sense holistically. Truthfully, I would say that the book is a work of art, and I'm not kidding. I really did find it unusual richness and yet not necessarily linear. You know, the same ideas would be examined in three different ways at three different places in the book, and they all made sense within the context they were in. You know, not the kind of thing that a typical academic monograph would do. Before we jump into the book, I usually don't do a lot of bio, but your biography is is intimately woven through the book and you know i don't want the whole story but just maybe the very short version tell us just a little bit about the appalach clan who they are where they live today and maybe just a teeny bit about your own remarkable life journey ah my remarkable life journey <laughs> I mean, we always have to do the biography don't we but look the um yes yeah, so the appalach clan so it's on western cape york the homeland there is is few different places, but includes a place called Cape Kiawea, which is Dutch for turn back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 500 years ago, we had a, a, a little bit of an incursion there from, from Dutch traders. Yeah, most of them ended up getting speared and it went back because they were trading things like soap and rice. And, and they, uh, unfortunately, Europe at the time regarded women as chattel as well. And they figured that uh, the women were a resource as well to be traded and um, they got a bit of a rude shock because <laughs> <laughs> the women went, nah, we're not having that. So, um, yeah, uh, most of them got speared and they limped back to Holland. And, uh, yeah, and that's interestingly enough, that little encounter with the Wick uh, people and particularly the Uplitch clan, uh, Western Cape York there, that uh, spawned the world's first corporation because, uh, you know, they made such heavy losses on that trip. Uh, the people that were funding the trip were quite upset about it. And um, I guess they had to find a way to shift accountability around. So they they invented that corporate entity. And then, so the Dutch East India Company was born. And then that kind of spread British East India Company and all that sort of thing. And corporations became the norm. And yeah, and, and then out of that came the whole uh, land as capital situation, which pretty much created the pyramid scheme that we have for a, a global economic system today. So, you know, um, that was our fault, really. Oh, yeah, definitely. All your fault, 
right? <laughs> so you can blame you can blame my my extended family for uh, for the entire <laughs> global financial crisis and everything else. We we caused that about five hundred years ago. And you know, my my personally, my life is I, I guess it's divided into three parts. You know, so the first and and I guess there'll be four parts in another ten years or so. Um, but yeah, I'm just sort of starting on the fourth part. But the first part was, um, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I was defined as um, part Aboriginal. And so my identity was very much tied up with these weird racist ideas of uh, a, a genetic inheritance that would mean that I'd drink and fight uh, more than everyone else. And so that was pretty much the first <laughs> third of my life. So there's nothing really... Um, useful or interesting to come out of my youth, just a, a whole heap of bloodshed and woe. And then I guess the second part of my life, I, I was, I sort of saw my identity as being cultural and tied to material culture. So I was, you know, playing the didgeridoo and, and, and making boomerangs and clapsticks and I was, you know, dancing corroborees and, um, you know, hunting and then, but, you know, in a really performative way. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, oh, look at me. <laughs> I'm the real deal. I'm really authentic. So that was the that uh, second third there. And I guess this last bit, the last decade and a half or so, two decades, has been more, you know, understanding my identity and my culture more as a, a, a knowledge system, you know, as a system of um, of knowledge, but not just know-how about, ah, oh, here's where you get this medicine plant and, you know, here's how you catch a fish or whatever. It's not that kind of thing. It's actually the, the ways of thinking and patterns of thinking and the, the systems of logic that have really, um, have really taken me. And, and I don't know, they just made me into a, a, a sort of a better person who's sometimes worth listening to. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And in fact, yeah, I, I know you, you reference it in various ways, but I think one of the one of the things I took away from the book is that you treat your culture as alive rather than as a museum artifact, right? Yeah. You know, this oh, isn't this lovely stick from eight hundred years ago and its meaning, whatever. Okay, well that, there is some use to that, but you know, I took away, you know, the, the fact that you're interpreting the Aboriginal way of seeing this lens as alive and adaptive and interacting with the world. I love the little riff you had with the elder about the cell phone, right? Yeah. Those of you who listen to the show know I've had my struggles with cell phone addiction. I wrote an essay called, it was something like recapturing our cognitive sovereignty or something about how I ditched the cell phone for a flip phone, right? But yet cell phones have found their way deeply into contemporary Aboriginal culture with God knows what implications, right? So I like that. Well, I mean, the ad adult literacy's improved. You know, in communities where all the adults were illiterate, everybody learned to read and write in, in about three weeks after getting their mobile phones because everyone was, everyone was texting. So, I mean, that's a, that's a good thing. But there's also a, a lot of really negative consequences as well. Um, yeah, I did do a podcast about that. We did one season. We're supposed to be doing another one, but, you know, COVID. Yeah, looking at the impacts of those. See, I got my first mobile phone in um, 2016. That was the first time I had one, and it's just it has messed with my cognition um, horrendously. It's messed with the way I connect to the world and to other people, and I kind of went, "Ah, oh, now I understand why everybody got so weird over the last decade." Yeah, that was it. 
but I actually have to have one because you, I can't log on to my work computer without having this app for security on, on my phone, you know? Yeah, the goddamn second token, it makes it almost impossible to be rid of the things. You know, I try hard not to be enslaved. I think I bought my, well, you'll like, you'll like this story. When I was uh, my last work gig, I was a CEO of a pretty high intensity company and we sort of had to have a cell phone when I was out of the office. So I instructed my assistant to keep three cell phones in her drawer. And when I went out of the office for, you know, a a business meeting or a trip downtown to argue with the government or something, she'd give me a phone. And in those days in the DC area, mostly I think because of the CIA, we were in outer fringes of the DC area. There were a lot of black spots where the reception just didn't work. And famously, whenever I was on a call with somebody and the call dropped, I would just roll the window down in my pickup truck and throw the cell phone out the window. <laughs> I'd get back to the office and I say, Jana, you better order another cell phone because <laughs> the damn thing pissed me off. But, you know, later when I retired, I had a cell phone, but I always warned people, don't ever call it. It's probably in my sock drawer. And it probably wasn't until 2010, God damn it, when they got good enough that they became so seductive that even, you know, I was forced. I was forced. Yeah, yeah. Just like the fat boy with the bag of macaroons. I'll confess to say I am a person of girth, so I can say this, right? (laughs) It's like a fat boy with a bag of macaroons. The goddamn things became so useful and so seductive. They're really, really hard to put down, but they have. maybe Maybe the CIA was after you. Then anyway, because you know, what's this game B stuff? You know, yeah, well, that was long before game B. He keeps ditching his burner phones. He's up to something. <laughs> well, that was back in the day when I was a classic game A motherfucker. So <laughs> they at least weren't worried about that, right? <laughs> there you go. I did a word search on your show as well, and, and the word motherfucker comes up 127 times. All right. <laughs> I didn't really. I just made that up. Only 127. Shit. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not holding up my side of the thing. That's only about two per episode. Motherfucker, right? I got to get on the stick, right? Oh, my goodness. Well, let's get down to it a little bit further. One of the first things that you talk about in the upfront part of the book is the concept of civilization. And guess what? You don't use it in the usual positive valence, right? In fact, quite the contrary. What does the word civilization mean to you? What are its implications? Well, yeah, exactly. I'm, you, you know, the way uh, there's no really good definition for it. They talk vaguely about rule of law and, and uh, you know, systems of laws and um, arts and culture and, uh, you know, surpluses of food or whatever. Like, I don't know. And they talk about and bread for some reason, like grinding flour for bread is a, a sign of civilization. I, I don't know why that is. Yeah, but they've actually, they've found grinding stones now that predate like Egyptians (laughs) grinding flour. So in Australia, we've got the oldest uh, flour grinding history of of anybody. When they recently actually destroyed that site, a mining company destroyed the site. I think they want to get rid of that. It's it's unpleasant for them. But for me, a civilization is is basically a, a community that must be constantly growing or it will collapse. And so, therefore, it relies on the importation of resources. That's it. That's all I can find in common across all these places that call themselves civilizations. And they all behave the same way, and they have that growth-based imperative, that growth-based paradigm. And it's, uh, it's impossible. It's a denial of reality. It's a denial of physics. It's a denial of everything. And it's, um, I think that's, if you want a definition of evil, I think um, 
it's probably a good one. It's just denial of reality. Yep. And, you know, just frankly, plain old math, right? I mean, the math of exponential growth forever, guess what? It doesn't work, right? Eventually you, you hit the limit. One of the good thinkers, I forget who, was it Herbert Simon? Somebody said, you know, if something can't grow forever, it won't, right? Yeah, that's Let it. that be a warning to you, right? Well, I mean, we, we have a very different, uh, in Aboriginal Australia here, we have a different uh, paradigm. And it sounds similar. It's um, it's just a very subtle difference. Instead of a, a growth-based paradigm, we have an increase paradigm. So we, have actu- we actually have uh, annual increase ceremonies that we do uh, to organize um, all, all those behaviors and get everybody on the, on the right page with that. And also to, you know... Um, uh, to to be able to sort of model, create a model, I guess, a simulation. I, I'm trying to translate this into your language, <laughs> a simulation um, in a ritual space of, of what needs to occur in the ecosystem for increase to occur. So now increase is different from growth, you know, because you don't want the size of the system to grow, but you want the relationships within the system, the exchange within the system, that needs to increase. And you can increase that quite infinitely. So I guess it would be like um, if you wanted to get smarter, you wouldn't need to grow a big brain. You would just have to make more neural connections. So it's kind of it's kind of like that. Uh, so it's an increase. Power. If it was an economy, like uh, like we were, we're not really interested in um, you know quantitative easing. This kind of thing. we're not interested in the size of the economy, but we are very interested in the velocity of the dollar. You know what I mean? That's it's it's that kind of it, it puts that lens on it. Yeah, I talk about that sometimes when we talk about degrowthing. I am careful to make a distinction. We certainly need to degrowth with respect to what I call gross growth or macro growth. You know, the you know tearing the earth up, pulling stuff out of it, burning fossil fuels, destroying intact forests and grasslands for industrial agriculture, etc. But on the other hand, growth into the microcosm doesn't disrupt the way the world operates. There's no real limit to, for instance, you know, how rich our poetry could be, for instance, right? Poetry may get richer over time. I don't know. I don't know that much about poetry. But art certainly has gotten in some ways richer, or at least new techniques have been added, probably some of that circular. But I like your perspective also that if we make our relationship map better and more fulfilling, that's a form of micro growth, right? Growth into the microcosm. And making that distinction is important because, you know, saying that we want to degrowth doesn't mean that life can't keep getting richer. It can, right? It just has to respect the outer envelope. Yeah, the other thing, you know, again, your perspective of that thing which has to grow you also are pretty specific about the manifestation, which is the city, that everything that you call a civilization builds cities. Did the Aboriginal people ever have cities? Not, not particularly. They were, um, so y- you would sort of manage these large estates that were defined by sort of the natural boundaries of a, of a, of a bioregion, really. And so your language would, would be perfectly suited to that bioregion. And, and those borders were, were maintained as such. And, and I guess that's how, if you look at an Aboriginal map of Australia, there's about 500 different countries um, and different languages, dialects, etc. 
there was uh, that one situation referred to in the book of, of the Barkaji mob who um, experimented with a sedentary <laughs> uh, lifestyle and, and they had uh, all lots of different people coming together. It's like the Tower of Babel story in the Bible, you know, and they all came together and they forgot all their own languages and started speaking their own language. But then when the earth moved, as the earth inevitably does, they'd forgotten how to move with it. And so they were nearly wiped out. You know, so they kept that story uh, and they've handed that story down. We've had lots of apocalypses uh, to remind us of that. So you have these sort of seasonal estates, you know, like you move around those estates seasonally and care for the different parts of that country in the right season. You know, I don't know that that's kind of how you operate. And you have uh, several different camps there. Sometimes the camps are a lot more sophisticated. So we've got some down in Victoria where we're living now. People were building their houses out of stone and some quite large ones that sleep up to 20 people or something. And there's lots of early settler accounts of that they were so sturdy that the settlers are riding their horses up on the top of the stone house and getting their picture taken or bloody painted or whatever it is that they do, you know. So there were there was a there was a aquaculture system here where there was masonry lined canals and things like that. But people still moved seasonally around the bigger states. So it wasn't really, you know, this permanent sedentary thing. Some places, though, the, the food was so abundant, particularly along the coast, the north, northeast coast there of Australia. There were some places where just some people just stayed put. Yeah. So there, there are, I have heard reports of, of some permanent settlements. Uh, happening be- just because the coastal area was so abundant with food that nobody needed to move. But, you know, coastlines move. <laughs> yep, yep, very true, especially you know, in something with the time depth of Australia. I mean, Australia was settled when the ice ages were still high, right? And the water level was low. And, you know, as you mentioned in the book, there's still traditions about the inundations that came, you know, starting maybe 11,000 years ago as the ice melted and lots of areas that had been settled are now 300 feet underwater. Yeah, we still have maps in our oral histories of, of, of the land that's under the sea there along the coast. So it's still land that we're familiar with through the stories, which you kind of, I don't know, you visualize them. Stories, songs, these things are maps. So you do map that territory and you, you're still caring for that place, even though it's under the sea. You know, so a lot of the old people, they, they had this, this kind of a relationship with whales and dolphins, you know, um, ritually whereby they'd care for that country under the sea and with their relationship with those things. Uh, there's lots of documented incidences of, of the old fellows calling the dolphins in, and that still actually happens today. There's still lots of people who do that. So they call the dolphins uh, or they make a sound like bang two rocks together under the water and the dolphins know you're there and they actually will chase fish up towards the beach and into the nets and then everyone shares shares the fish with the dolphins like that. And the idea of uh, when whales are beaching, uh, the idea is that they're bringing um, the spirit you know, out of the land under the sea there that got flooded. They're bringing a spirit child up uh, to be born. You know, so the the whale brings it up and, and beaches itself there. So the old people do a do a ceremony to take that um you know, that, that spirit, that child spirit and um put it in the freshwater so that it can travel up and get born into the baby. Quite interesting. It's amazing. Amazing the depth of the stories. You know, one of the recent learnings of European science is that one of the most important settlements in the British 
Netherlands region is actually now underwater in the North Sea. Apparently, it was probably the biggest such settlement maybe eight or 9,000 years ago. But within the traditions of you know, Western civilization, all that's been swept away and nobody remembered it. It's really quite impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got to, you've got to just, um, I mean, you look at the things that get triggered, you know, by these, these, these shifts. So, I mean, you've got to kind of wish that the, um, the land of the Engels hadn't ended up starting to get it flood, getting, getting flooded, <laughs> you know, cause if they hadn't had that inundation coming up, then they, um, they might have ended up looking for greener pastures in England, uh, what became England anyway. And, uh, I think things might've been different. Yeah, but of course, as we know, if we both of us are interested in the complexity of the world, you know, the ability to predict the future is you know, very slim because so many things are contingent, right? Oh, that's it. Yeah, a little bit of climate or, you know, frankly, a family feud. So, you know, Charles the Bald gets thrown out of the family for being an asshole and he and his cousins get in a boat you know, a leaky boat and go across the English Channel and go over there and attack the people there. And maybe they're successful, maybe they're not. But the time that somebody is successful, then they end up slowly colonizing a new country. And you know, it's happened again and again. You made the good point that the Brits, who were the uber colonists, themselves had their ass kicked at least three times, right? They were. That's it. Yeah, they were had their ass kicked by the Romans, by the Celts, and then by the Vikings. Oh, then not, let's not mention the Normans in 1066, right? So everybody gets their ass kicked by somebody, right? Though it is, of course, back to our, you know, sort of our deep theme. I always like to say Mother Nature bats last, right? And so if somebody else doesn't kick our ass, Mother Nature will. And I think, you know, that's really a really important oh, part. Bats, bats last, but I mean... It, it'd be like playing baseball with Emperor Nero or something. <laughs> you know, you, like you don't want to beat him by accident, you know, because he will cut your head off if you're lucky. Oh, sorry, I got, I got my pronouns mixed up there with, I can't talk about Nero. I was trying to write about Nero the other day and I, I wasn't sure what the correct pronouns were to call him because it just kept changing throughout the story. You know, like when he killed his wife in front of everybody and then said that didn't happen and then uh, forced some poor guy who was unlucky enough to look a bit like his wife uh, had a sex change on him there on the spot and then just so he and dressed him up like the wife and then that was his wife then he dressed up as a woman and married a dude as well so he's married he was married to both of them at the same time so i don't know whether it's is it she her is it they them or uh, and it keeps changing throughout the story so i i just i gave up i i didn't write that essay in the end i just went oh, i'm not even going to try is this a pronoun nightmare here? I didn't even know all that. Stuff. That's <laughs> pronouns, are, pronouns are important, though. I guess. I guess. I don't know. I think maybe we're getting a little too, you know, sometimes I've sensed that maybe I'm just an old fart. And I'll admit to being an okay boomer, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, God damn, you know. Well, we, we, don't have, uh, we don't have gendered pronouns in my language, so, um, so it's all right. <laughs> you had some very nifty kind of collective pronouns there, was it? Us all, or something like that, or was it the one that you used a lot? Yeah, there's a, there's there's quite a few, but yeah, the one I use in the book, as far as I know, it's the first book that's that's largely written in the um, what do linguists call it, the the dual first person plural. <laughs> it's called so the dual first person plural is basically um, yeah, I just translated it as us two, 
us too. That was it. Yeah. I liked, I actually like that. You know, it made me feel like I was like sitting next to you and we were having a conversation or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's, then there's, um, the exclusive first person plural, which is, um, you know, us, but not them. So, you know, just us fellas, just us, just us guys, I know, or, um, just us overweight people or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Full-figured fellas, please, right? <laughs> you know, so you can have your exclusive groups. and But then they also, they have to interact with the bigger inclusive groups, which is us all, you know. But then there's heaps more. There's us belonging to him, us belonging to her, uh, us belonging to them. There's, there's a whole heap of different ones. But your pronouns basically tell you who you're supposed to be in the world, what your social roles are. And what I saw coming out of the pronouns was um, that they lined up pretty much with... I don't know what I came to think of as the operating protocols for an agent in a complex adaptive system, which I kind of liked, you know? Yeah. We'll get to those. That, that section is a real important part of the book. Yeah. So with, the, with your, your indigenous languages is something that comes from the landscape. You know, it's, it's embedded in the landscape and perfectly describes it. And so your social system, it's not separate from the land either. You know, there's no two there's no two separate words for you know society and nature. It's one thing. You know, so you have this totemic connections, you know, to everything within the ecosystem, and so your your social system and your way of operating in the world, um, it really follows along uh, precisely as part of the 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 what you call natural system, I guess, or the ecosystem. Yeah, what I particularly liked about it is that it showed a huge amount of nuance, frankly more so than English by a whole lot, which is famously poor in its pronouns, how important relationships are and that, you know, we're all holons, you know, we're all both a thing, an individual, but we're also part of many other higher level structures. We have a pair bond with our wife and with our brother and with our best friend, and then that relationship's embedded in other relationships, et cetera. And I thought your people's language perhaps is focused on that more and is rich, you know, in the same way that, you know, they tell me that the Inuit people have 34 words for snow. Ah, no, don't go superior and wolf on me. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a, you know, that's sort of folk, folk anthropology. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that one of the trendy one in the 70s. I, I know who you were smoking reefer with at college for that one. You know? <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, in a similar way, they would have such a finely articulated set of collective pronouns is interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, but you know, there's heaps of different words for snow in English, too, if you think about it, you know, slush and sleet and all kinds. But, you know, yeah, it, it, see, it's kind of like that. But that, um, see, their research, Sapir and Wharf, was, was shoddy. And so it got, de it got debunked, you know, because, I don't know, they hadn't crossed the I's and dotted the T's on their, I don't know, their experimental something or other. So, you know, that actually got debunked. And then so the idea of linguistic relativism, which I know you don't like the R word, um, that one got shut down for a long time. But then uh, there's been a lot of heaps better uh, studies that have been done over the last decade or so. And, yeah, so they're actually finding, well, yes, language and culture do affect your cognition. Uh, they affect the way you sequence things. They affect your focus, like what you attend to, like in an image, like do you notice the foreground figure first or do you notice the context and the background? And so, you know, your indigenous cultures and, um, you know, non-Western languages tend to uh, focus on the context first. 
you know, they'll see all the trees, the bird, the time of day, where the sun is, the shadow, all the things in the picture. And then they'll say, and a man's walking his dog. Um, you know, whereas a settler or um, a lot of Europeans will look at the same thing and go, oh, that's a guy walking his dog uh, in the forest. You know, <laughs> yeah. So you kind of sequence things differently and you, you attend to different things. And yeah, that is mediated by language and it's mediated by culture. Um, that cognition. Yeah, but, you know, the so it's the so-called Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, right? That our language actually conditions our thinking in pretty substantive ways, and it hasn't been proven. It's still a conjecture, but I've always thought it likely to be true, right? Uh, you know, some of the examples you give, you know. Yeah, uh, but there's some good ones. There's there's a lot of more, you know, better studies. So studies of language where they, they've shown that. Um, so Turkish, Spanish, and Japanese people will sequence. Uh, so uh, the cat rolled down the roof in English. You know, if you speak those other three languages, you actually process that in a different order because the cat descended the roof rolling. You know, um, so they, they've kind of they've done a lot a lot better studies in the meantime. You know, and they're arranging objects on a table. You know, and then removing the objects and moving the table on a different angle in a different. Uh, place and then saying, okay, uh, place the objects back on the table as you remember them. So uh, non-Indigenous people will tend to put the objects, uh, align them with the corners of the table, you know, whereas the Indigenous people will align the objects with the original position, you know, in regard to uh, north, south, east, west, you know. So it's that uh, kind of more contextual place-based cognition rather than that kind of more what they call that um, field-independent uh, cognition, yeah. Yeah, and one would make sense that, you know, the cognitive models that we're developing from a very young age, much of it mediated by language in the case of humans, are going to impact, you know, the way we work. That's it. And you, you can't just generalize and say Europeans either because Scottish people do the same thing apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of other different communities. And there's, you know, in some places, it's interesting, they've found that the cognition starts to change uh, the more contact you have with the global economic system. Yeah, you gave a great example in your book, actually, which I have later in my notes, but I think we'll hop to it because I think it makes a distinction that, that you pick up on, which is European, white, those are just labels we slap on these phenomenon, Right. And you give the very interesting example of the Sami people, used to be known as the Laplanders, who are about as white as you can possibly be from, you know, bright yellow hair and nice pink cheeks and all this stuff. And they live in the far, far north of Sweden and Norway, I think maybe a little bit over the border into Russia. And yet they don't live in a way, and maybe they do a little bit more now, but until very, very recently, they live much more like indigenous people and still to this day have a lot of indigenous style ways of seeing the world. Yeah, well, they maintain their languages and uh, cultures and they also maintain their herds, their reindeer herds and all that sort of thing. Yeah, but when I met those two old ladies, I was just on there like, yes, and we are indigenous people. from, And I'm like, ah, and, but then I'm, listen to them for a while. It's like, this is just like talking to my auntie. This is insane. You know, this is, I feel <laughs> it was um, like exactly the same way of thinking and relating and being together. And, and, you know, they just were doing all the same protocols, um, you know, that I was doing. And um, 
yeah, it just blew me away. But then it made me quite troubled because I was still using that black and white language before, even though I'm like personally I'm more beige than anything. Um, you know, like we still use that word black a lot. Like we call ourselves black fellows. You know, even though most of us, as I said in the book, we can't scrape together enough melanin to scare off a taxi anymore. Um, we still use that language. It's there all. And, and, and some of the young people started taking the C out of it to make the distinction. They're just B-L-A-K kind of thing. Just <laughs> try and make sense and try of, you know, why we're saying that. Because it actually offends a lot of, like, you know, African people come here. And those of us who are heaps more pale, we're calling ourselves black and they get really wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's problematic. There's that P word. But, yeah, I, I, I just I wasn't comfortable with those those terms after that. And, and I guess once I once I smashed that binary, then I started smashing a lot of other binaries, too. Um, you know, uh, ah, all of them. Yep. Well, I must say, you know, that resonates with me very strongly. I've for a long time thought I call it the race swindle, right? This idea that these alleged races are actually, you know, hugely significant in who we are. When if you actually look much more carefully, who we really are is what our cultures are, right? And the cultures are very variable. You know, even in Europe, you know, you have your Sami people who you found as another group, which is much less well-known, which are the mountain Serbs that live on top of a tall mountain in Montenegro. And, you know, they were still tribal people until 30 years ago, and they still have very strong tribal styles of being, I happen to know one, and she is you would not want to get into a fight with her is all I can tell you. She would kick your fucking ass in a heartbeat, <laughs> right? And she is still a mountain Serb to the bone, even though she lives here in the United States. And so it's about our culture. I mean, I truthfully over the years have come to the conclusion that the actual differences amongst the races are so immaterial as not to be even be worth thinking about in terms of the actual people, right? But it's the cultures. Well, it was an economic uh, classification. I mean, the, originally the race theory, it was just whoever they wanted to make into slaves. Like, remember, they, they had um, the Cockney race and the Irish race and the Scottish race. They had all these different races and, and charts showing their different skull shapes and how, how much more stupid they were, you know. Yeah, well, the Irish, us Irish were, you know, we were considered the black men of Europe until quite recently, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you look at even Polish people in the United States until very recently were that <laughs> they were only just included in the last few decades as, as white people. It's it's so weird. It just I mean it just shifts and shifts. It's just whatever it needs to be uh, to suit the interests of the powerful. I think at any time, and um, and I don't think we have to buy into it. Yeah, I think we shouldn't. I, I think we're 100% on the same page. Another interesting historic example is the caste system in India. If you dig into the history of it, you basically find, surprise, surprise, that each new invader of North India, and that's really where the caste system is strongest, essentially invented a new caste to sit on top of the previous castes. And North India has been conquered again and again and again. And essentially, the caste system is just an institutionalization of you know the fact that the new invaders are ranked higher than the previous track of invaders, frankly, not very different than the way the Norman French invented the idea of the nobility to sit on top of the English, right? So this is a pattern we see over and over and over again. So this is all very interesting. Let's move back towards maybe what I would think of as the main theme here. 
And that is, you talk about the fact that growth is the engine of the city. If the growth stops, the city falls. And as we talk about, it's happened again and again and again. You know, the so-called fertile crescent ain't so fertile anymore, right? And North Africa used to be the grain basket of the Mediterranean region. In our Game B talk, we talk about the fact that our current system and all systems that have been operating on essentially the same template are essentially self-terminating. And this time, you know, the stakes are really high. In the past, because we hadn't built our stack of infrastructure so high, okay, Rome falls, right? And a fair number of people die, but human race doesn't disappear. New German tribes come in and intermarry with the Romans and life goes on. The level of culture falls quite a bit. Literacy, the example I like to use in you know, 400 AD, 60% of the people in a French city, French town were literate. By 600 AD, the king of France was illiterate. So we did lose a lot of culture, but most people survive. But in our world with 8 billion, soon to be 10 billion people, depending on artificial fertilizer, electricity, all you know, kinds of stuff, people, bad habits, need fancy health care. This time, the fall is going to be ugly. You know, I, my guesstimate is the world can only support one to two billion people without advanced technology. So if we're at 10 billion, when the shit hits the fan, do the math, not pretty. And we got to find our way out of this self-terminating trap. Yeah, well, I, I went to a modern monetary theory conference. I had to do a, a, a speech there a few months back. And they really, they had uh, Bernie Sanders' financial advisor <laughs> there. I can't remember her name now. Yeah, and, and but they're really convinced that, that they can do a soft landing uh, using modern, modern monetary theory. They can kick the can down the road is my guess. Yeah, yeah. But eventually the can goes over the cliff. Your surplus is, is, is my deficit, they say, and that, you know, you just expand the deficit. And as long as you're not pegged to another currency, you're right. You can just print as much money as you want. And then somehow you'll have all the resources you need. <laughs> I don't know. They're talking about that to fund a Green New Deal. And I was like, ah, that sounds lovely, but it sounds a bit magical to me as well. I think people are dreaming of a soft landing, but um, I don't think this landing is going to be too soft. This next de decade is going to be an interesting one. You're lucky you're in the mountains. You got, you got your farm in the mountains there. You'll be right. Yeah. And in fact, I hate to say it, but global warming will actually make our land more productive. Although if you talk to people who went through, uh, you know, little uh, civilization apocalypses in places like Serbia and Argentina, the people who um, were really prepped and sitting on land out in the countryside, they're the ones who were least likely to survive because there's heaps of bandits. So I hope you got a big bunch of guns. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I will. I will say you better fucking beep your horn before you come up to the front. <laughs> yeah, we are well prepared. I will leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. You're right. In fact, just a quick little story. When we first bought the farm. This is actually interesting and ties in a little bit to some of your other themes. We had done the title search, as we typically do under the English common law, to see the history of the land, and we found quite interesting and extremely rare in the United States that this parcel had been settled by one of the five original settlers in this area in 1746. And our parcel had been handed down father to son, unbroken for 220 years. 
That's a lot. That's 10 generations approximately. Maybe it was eight generations. Father to son, no break. And then one of them got a mobile phone and he was finished. Well, a little bit. It was a, a different temptation. In 1973, the last one of the family decided he liked drinking more than he liked farming. And so he sold our farm to a bunch of back-to-the-land hippies, and it turned into a hippie commune. And you know, they tried growing sheep. They tried growing corn. They tried even garlic, which is a terribly bad idea where we are for various reasons. And they finally found the one product that they could always sell. Guess what that was? Reefer, right? And the place had sort of a dodgy reputation. And so when we bought the place, you know, a nice young married couple with a six-month-old baby, I called the sheriff just to introduce myself. I'm from a law enforcement family. My father was a Washington, D.C. cop. My brother's a cop, you know. So I know sort of, the, you know, how to talk to law enforcement people, even though I did have my life of crime period there in my late teens. We, we may talk about that later we, when we get to that topic. But anyway, I just called the sheriff and said, hey, you know, we, we bought the X place and, you know, blah, blah, a little bit about us, yada, yada, yada. We talked about half an hour, very pleasant conversation. And the last thing that came out of his mouth was, hey, y'all know you're 35 minutes from the sheriff's station. Something comes up, do what you got to do. Right. That's <laughs> yeah, life in the country. And we take that fairly seriously. Anyway, let's get back a little bit onto our theme here, which is self-termination. And interestingly, you hit on one of my favorite topics. And if you listen to the show a lot, you know, we talk about it fair often. It's the Fermi paradox. Hey. Yeah. Why, if there's aliens, why don't we see them? And you say, maybe the reason I'm reading this is a direct quote from the book. Maybe the reason all the powerful instruments pointing at the sky have not yet been able to detect high-tech alien civilizations is these unsustainable societies don't last long enough to leave a cosmic trace, an unsettling thought. That's one of the 99 arguments about the Fermi paradox. Maybe Yeah, they... I thought I thought it was my original idea that one and then I started listening to your show and it, yeah, it's it's like it's one of the <laughs> there's a lot of people saying the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, the great filter. It's actually one version of it's called the great filter argument that was focused and formulated by Robin Hansen, who we've had on the show. And, you know, this his argument and he, he's very subtle guy. He says, well, you know, the, either, the great filter is either behind us or ahead of us. Right. And maybe the great filter is something behind us, like the emergence of our particular variety of multicellular life, in which case, great. Even if it's extremely rare to become a galactic civilization, we've passed the great filter. But he gives a lot of interesting arguments that makes one believe that the great filter is probably in front of us. And that should be an unsettling thought. Look, if you, if you, if you find that you're a really vital missing piece in your Game B community design is is that there has to be some kind of religion for the whole thing to work, then maybe you could pray to the great filter. <laughs> great filter, please don't filter us, right? Now, now we're getting into some of the places where your perspective really does come very close to the Game B perspective in almost same words. You talk about the fact that, the, in fact, these again, right out of the book, the stories that define our thinking today describe an eternal battle between good and evil springing from an originating act of sin. But these terms are just metaphors for something much more difficult to explain, a relatively recent demand that simplicity and order be imposed upon the complexity of creation, a demand sprouting from an ancient seed of narcissism that has flourished due to a new imbalance in human societies. 
you know, could you expand on this concept? Two things, you know, two of your very important themes now surface for the first time is simplicity and artificial order imposed on complexity. And then one I had never seen used quite this way, the idea that narcissism is a very important aspect of what's going on. Maybe talk about those two things. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, I don't know, entropy, my understanding of it is it happens in a closed system. Not that such a thing is possible to have a closed system, but, you know, so it's it's kind of like there's this um, there's this desire in these civilizations to to create this order, this unity, this simplicity, you know, citizens who think alike on most issues and, you know, uniformity in thought, word and deed, I think, were in the original public school syllabuses. You know, um, it's this idea of these monocultures, you know, and just, I mean, just the arrogance of that. It, it's this is what leads to that idea with the narcissism. So I, Aboriginal cultures, basically, the entire culture is a response to narcissism. It's a way of, of holding narcissism in check. It's of um, basically stopping these, I don't know what you, you'd call them, assholes or whatever, um, from running amok and making a mess everywhere. But also acknowledging that everyone's an asshole from time to time. Everyone's a narcissist from time to time. It's a seed in us, you know. And, yeah, so it's um, it's basically, you know, our social systems, our cultures are, are designed mostly to hold that in check because when that gets out of balance, you know, uh, things go wrong. Um, you know, your society breaks down, your systems break down, your, your you know, your ecology is, is damaged. You know, I guess in game theory terms, it's, you know, that's you, you get a rise in your defectors and your your uh, freeloaders and, and sociopaths and predators. You know, they all come out of this narcissistic idea. And it's just that original sin of that thought, I am greater than. Yeah, but I really like that. I really like that because, you know, one of the things in our game B talk, we talk about sociopaths and how one of the known failure modes, at least known to us, of game A is the ugly fact that the kind of power, hierarchical power that game A is built upon attracts sociopaths the same way cheese attracts mice. And, you know, in my forays into that world, I've come back estimated that probably 10% of C-level executives in larger corporations in America are actual sociopaths compared to 1% in the overall population. And it might be 30% or more in certain areas like finance. In tech too, I like, I keep hearing that, that saying, uh, it's almost a saying now is that, you know, Silicon Valley is an army of autistics led by a handful of sociopaths. I made that quote. That's a Was that you? Ah, That was me. I've heard that in a few places now. (laughs) I I originally used it to describe Apple back in the days of Jobs and his folks. Apple is an army of autistics led by sociopaths. Beautiful. Well, I'll I'll be able to cite you now when I use that because I use it all the time. It's beautiful. As far as I know, I coined that expression. I've never heard it before and it's now being used a fair amount, as you say. I should have known. It, it's so Ruttian. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed. But and I think it is true that we do have a sociopathy problem. But I think that is particular to 
game a hierarchical position-based power as opposed to role-based leadership, which we'll talk about later. But I think your idea of narcissism is actually broader and maybe even more important. It truthfully opened my eyes in an important way and something that I'm going to try to add into the working kit of game B, you know, not just, frankly, power mad, no empathy people, but just the idea that I am greater. And there's a lot of people who are relatively mentally normal who have that as part of their operating baggage. It's not that, you know, you are nothing and I don't give a shit about your pain, which is the sociopath, but just I am greater, right? Greater than what? Why? How? Right? And if we can focus on that, I mean, you know, I would say of all the learnings I personally made, and there was a lot reading this book, this idea of narcissism as this concept of I am greater. It had some other valences too, but that was the core one I thought was hugely important. One of the things I found very interesting was that you said that the elders, the knowledge keepers, if they're starting to work with you and talk with you, yarn with you as you talk about, we'll talk about what's a yarn next, but that these elders, these wisdom keepers will withdraw if they sense narcissism in you. And it would seem to me if that could be built into the game B culture or any operating system culture, that would be a damn good thing. Yeah. I, I think that's universal too. Cause I think I mentioned in the book that, um, you know, I was, I was talking to a native American physicist at the perimeter Institute. Yeah. I just, I'd come into that conversation completely the wrong way. And, you know, I, I was, I don't know, I was distracted and I think I was a bit narcissistic and, he, he did that. He, he just, he kind of iced me in the end, you know? Um, and I thought, ah, oh, okay. So he's politely shut it down. I've gone the wrong way here. And, you know? Um, yeah. And you just accept that and then you learn the lesson and move on. And I think that's the, the big thing with our culture too, is that, um, you know, you're happy to get a rebuke or a punishment or even an, an ordeal, like a real ordeal, because it transforms you, you know, and then after after you've been punished, that's it. The crime's done. You you don't you don't carry that around in your reputation forever. It's finished. Everyone forgets it, you know. And I think that's that's a beautiful idea for anybody's justice system as well. I think. Look, the the narcissism is dealt with like early on because your life is in almost in these fifteen year sort of segments, and you go through sort of four periods of ordeal before you can become a real man, you know, and it kind of happens every 15 years or so. And so I guess the first one happens for men and women, uh, you know, um, around the age of 14, 15, you know, you, you go through that, uh, that rite of passage, that ritual of ordeal, and you experience terror and pain and, um, and a lot of other sort of secret things I can't go into. But basically, the upshot is you learn a very important lesson, the most important lesson in the world, which is I'm, I'm not special. That's really important to know. You're not special. And it's devastating. It's devastating at first. But then there's like a series of cascading realizations that come off that because eventually you figure out, well, actually, that means no one else is special either. And so that, that feel, makes you feel a bit better. And, you know, you can sort of start to see a bit of a governance model coming out of that. If, if nobody's particularly special, then there's a sort of hierarchical imperative there. But then you have more. You understand then, ah, but we, we belong to something special. All of us together, we belong to something special. You know, we're this custodial species. You know, we're the people who belong here. 
And it's just a beautiful way to live because it just crushes the narcissism in you, but you're not going into some kind of hive mind or commune or anything like that because it's not like that, you know. Um, you know, your indigenous identity is really strongly individualistic. You, you're a bit of a show-off, you know. It's, it's important to remain as distinct as possible from those who are most similar to you. You know, you, you are an individual, but at the same time, you're profoundly interconnected and related and interdependent um, with everybody around you. There's a very fluid self-other boundary. Yeah, I like that. A lot, a lot of things to talk about here. You know, you know, we talk about you're not special. Of course, it's a bit of a stereotype, and I don't say, think it's actually fully true, but like many stereotypes, there's some, you know, hint of truth to it. We talk about millennials in the West, right, who get the trophies for showing up for the football game rather than they're everybody is special. Every, you know, the original term of snowflake was every snowflake is different. It's special and wonderful, et cetera. And, you know, in my day, you got the shit kicked out of you if you had that attitude, right? Well, millennials have got 50 different words for snowflake. <laughs> exactly, right? And this, unfortunately, you know, the helicopter parenting, as they call it here in the West, may have produced a group of higher than normal narcissism. By no means all. I know a lot of good millennials. Let me get that on the table. I work with a lot of millennials in the neo-back-to-the-land local agriculture movement. And these are grounded people. I mean, if you're farming, it's hard to be a narcissist, right? The universe is your checksum, and it uh, kicks you in the butt regularly. But for the ones that are out there in this abstract world of online and jobs that you couldn't explain to your kids if your life depended on it, Maybe there's a lot more narcissism than there used to be, and you throw that into the, you know, the inflammatory situation of social media and the feedback loops and the signals you get to produce more narcissism. That does not sound good to me. No, but I mean, but any uh, any threat like that that arises in a system will 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 spark the the creation of its opposite somewhere else in that system. You know, so like you say, you know, you have those kind of disconnected millennials. Um, popping up, but then, you know, straight away, then you have that agricultural community you're talking about, which, you know, is very connected people. And yeah. Yeah. Well, we have a great example here of uh, the young millennials in our area were lots of farms. There was five farms that were being run by young, hard charging millennials to service the high end restaurant community over an hour away, but, you know, they were driving their produce over there. And of course the pandemic comes, all the fine dining restaurants close. So they are adaptive. They pull together and quickly build a website and offer all this unbelievably nice produce to people, to regular end user consumers. And we now subscribe to them. And once a week we drive down to the kind of the central farm of the five farms and they aggregate all the stuff from the five farms that we've ordered online. And then we drive down, press the button, open the tailgate on the SUV. They load the stuff into our cooler and off we go. It's the exact opposite of narcissism. You know, they figured out how to make something work. Quite interesting. Now, the other thing I want to jump to, it's actually in my notes further ahead, but I thought was a very important point, very important. And as one of the ways that the West, especially the most current West is fucked up, is this business about your criminal record, right? And permanently disabling you. I'm just going to tell a couple of personal stories here. One, I was a bad boy when I was young. I, I, is that shocking? Probably not. I was thrown in jail three times. I got a criminal record, right? 
and I got caught once for something really bad and got out of it by the most unbelievable good luck imaginable, which I'm not going to get into. But in my day, it wasn't such a big deal. Nobody, the databases didn't exist. They couldn't find out, you know, and it just wasn't something that's done. I suspect I would have had a hard time having the good career I did today with some stupid ass fucking 19 year old bullshit on my record. Right. And that's really wrong. Right. And I can go even deeper story. And I don't know what the truth of this is, but I suspect that it is exactly this. My mother's father is a mystery man. He grew up in a town in Northern Wisconsin, fought in World War I, traveled around the world as a merchant Marine, and then showed up in a place where my mother is from, very far Northern Minnesota, and just showed up there one day and wouldn't tell anybody really where he came from. He never left the county again for 30 years, never spoke of his family, etc. And we figure he was essentially on the run from some misdeed, probably criminal. And yet in those days, easy enough, just move, right? And behave yourself and go on with your life. And he had a reasonably productive life. He was an eccentric individual, to say the least, but he was able to have a normal life, had nine kids, etc. And this idea that people are stigmatized forever by something for which they have received their just punishment for strikes me as very fucked up. And actually one of the bases of some of the black-white racial problems in the United States, right? And I really do like this idea that we should go back to the way it even used to be in the United States until 40, 50 years ago that, hey, you've done your time. You're a free man. You're a citizen again. Let's just forget about that and go forth and sin no more. That's it. I mean, it's, I don't know, it just seems pretty simple to me. But I mean, you have to make sure that that ordeal is transforming the person, though. Well, you can't be sure. It's hard to tell, right? Well, I think for some things you you want some degree of certainty. Like um, I think some people probably need to lose their junk before they're um, unleashed back into the community, <laughs> you know, for example. Yeah, but you, there has to be some kind of ordeal that they go through that actually transforms them and changes them. And um, some people who are wise enough to, to see that that has happened. It can't just be, you know, yeah, I, I've taken Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior and, um, you know, I'm reading the Bible now, so can you let me out early? Because um, you know that, you know, the, <laughs> I've seen enough movies to know that that's bullshit half the time, you know. But look, I think all this is coming out of this um, obsession with safety and security, this idea that it's a human right to be safe, you know, I that's that's it's just it's such a new idea like so when you're growing up as a kid you run around with a a, a a knife on your belt and all these sorts of things that that was just normal like five minutes ago you know but now i mean oh no that's a that's a ohs issue that's um yeah no that's <laughs> well it's illegal you've got to get fined for that because we've got to keep everybody safe you might lose an eye i mean it's just it's just awful see we don't have we don't uh, we don't have a word for safety in Aboriginal languages, in every Aboriginal language I've seen, there's no word for safety. There are words for protection, though. And protection is a very different thing because protection has agency as part of it. You know, your protection is your responsibility. Then you have agency in ensuring your safety. But also in, in our communities, you're not just responsible for your own protection, but the protection, active protection, not just passive safety of the, all the people around you. And so that means that you're watching their back, they're watching your back, you know, and in a group, 
you, you are protected. And there's power in that. And that power has been taken away. You know, and I guess that's where, if we talk about violence later, looks like it'll have to be another episode the way we're going. But the, you know, the agency of violence has been taken away and monopolized and concentrated into the hands of a few people. And, you know, you see how badly that goes pretty much lately, especially, you know, uh, it, that, that doesn't work out too well for everybody. Like everything else in a, in a complex system, you know, violence needs to be something that's distributed throughout the system. And you need lots of agents who are uh, capable of using it. And I think if there's any group that's denied access to the agency of violence, then, um, you know, that, that group's not going to have a particularly good time. Yeah, let's talk about this one. Maybe, maybe this will be one of our last topics for this first section. To our listeners, Tyson and I have talked offline, and we realize there's just so much good stuff to talk about that we're going to not try to jam it all into one 90-minute episode, and we're going to come back and do a part two. You know, on my podcast, I've talked quite a bit about when I was a kid, I kept a knife in my pocket from literally age eight, right? That's just what we did. You know, my senior year in high school, sort of a almost mandatory part of manly dress was to have a folding buck knife, you know, a big hunting knife on your belt in a leather scabbard. Could you imagine today if 50% of the seniors at a high school showed up with big old buck knives on their belt? They'd call out the National Guard probably, right? It'd be the end of the world. It'd be like, what the hell, right? Revolution. <laughs> And then the other one, again, is one of my pet peeves, and that's why I resonated with what you wrote about violence. The V word is, you know, considered so bad by so many people. When I was a kid, everybody fought. All boys fought, and a non-trivial number of girls fought. You know, it didn't really matter, frankly, if you won or lost, right? And some people were better fighters than others. But having the heart to fight was a key part of being a person in our community, and as you say, it was essentially, it was almost like a clan. It was a protective measure that any group of us knew that we all knew how to take care of ourselves. And so there was a group of us, we run into a group of others, whoever those were, we weren't too concerned about it. We weren't overreacting. We weren't anxious, et cetera, because we all knew how to take care of ourselves. And we'd all been punched a few times. We knew that the world does not end if you get punched in the face a couple of times, Jesus Christ, right? But today kids fight in school and literally they call the police. What the hell? If you know anything about young mammals, particularly male mammals, they all play fight, spar, etc. And we had what I called the Code of Adelphi, which is the town I grew up in, which there was definitely unwritten rules for fighting within the in-group, which is you never kick somebody when they're on the ground. You know, you never... You never tore ears. You never went for the eyes. You know, you never kicked somebody in the balls. Well, with enough provocation, maybe. But that was the outer limits. And nobody, I mean, yeah, teeth got knocked out, right? Collarbones got broken occasionally, but oh well, right? But there was never any serious damage. But guess what we did not have in those days? School shootings. The thought was just unthinkable. You know, you had a problem with somebody, you went underneath the, the pear tree and you had it out, Right. Well, and how many how many hospitalizations do you remember from those fights? Zero, right? Zero. No, zero overnight. You know, again, maybe you have to have your collarbones set or something, but no hospitalizations overnight. Yeah, that's it. But but it's not like that now because the kids don't have access to those codes of conflict because, you know, all violence is bad, so it's just not allowed. So they don't understand the codes and the rules. And when the violence erupts in a school, I mean, they, they, they're getting someone on the ground and stomping on their head and trying to kill them. They're, they're doing horrendous damage. 
you know so now when fights happen they're they're horribly violent and terribly damaging and as i said we all carry knives but it was it'd be an absolute violation of the code to ever produce a knife in a fight amongst your peers right it was not even thinkable truthfully it was so deeply engaged in the culture and if someone had you know the group would have just jumped in and beaten their ass right but i literally never saw it happen in probably a hundred fights that i witnessed that anyone produced a knife even though probably 80 percent of them had a knife on their person just wasn't done i'm in a strong agreement that this attempt to make life safe and padded with foam and particularly young males not being allowed at all to fight it's just terrible at multiple levels you can't really become a fully integrated person that violence is going to be sublimated not having been articulated in a code right in a cultural norms as you say instead of you know standing up and sparring with your hands all right you know no, you know, no big deal Honor was made by both parties. Nobody was hurt too bad. You know, instead, without that kind of context, finally, you know, the person that's being persecuted snaps and, you know, brings a baseball bat to school and almost kills somebody. That's what we have instead. Or worse still, they bring a gun to school. And I was very intrigued, actually, at your, that you, again, come to the same idea from a very different perspective, from the perspective of, of your culture, that, hey, you know, Violence does have a place, but it needs to be acculturated. Mm. Well, it's, it, it, it demands expression. And, you know, so, so we have this idea of that uh, you've got the, your big power or big spirit that's in your belly and that mental illness comes from um, allowing things to build up there, you know, negative emotions and things like that. So you have to give them expression immediately. You know, if you're angry, you yell. It, it, and if it's, if it's, you know, a big transgression and you're very angry about it, then, then you have to fight. You have to fight the person that's transgressed against you. But it has to be public. It has to be transparent. And you don't want to break the rules because the crowd will stop you, you know, straight up. You're not pulling hair. You're not hitting anybody, anybody when they're on the ground. You're not kicking. You know, it's just bo straight, just boxing. You know, you know how they say every fight, like I keep hearing these Americans saying, uh, you know, every fight always ends up on the ground. Not for us. They, they don't end up on the ground. If someone falls, you wait until they get up again. Yep. It was, it was true in my community as well. Now, there was actually two kinds of fighting. There was this, call it ritualistic fighting, where you stand and throw punches, right? And then there was the very much rarer, really serious fucking grudge fight, in which case people would go to the ground. But that was a different thing. And there was also what I would call fighting with others, you know, outside of our community, in which case you modulated the level of violence based on an assessment of the risk. And you might well go to the ground. But there was a big distinction. You know, cultural ceremonial fighting was always done standing and with your hands. It sounds very similar. I'm working on a re research project at the moment, actually. It's a, it's a study, uh, myself and another indigenous researcher, we're um, doing a study on uh, settler on settler violence. <laughs> and so we're looking at, at like our, our data set is 100 uh, YouTube street fight videos of um, settlers fighting in different settler states around the world. So, you know, Taiwan, Israel, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and the US, there's, there's heaps there. Yeah, and, and we're applying a heuristic of indigenous rule-governed violence. So we're taking our fighting rules and we're, <laughs> we're judging <laughs> the settler fights uh, based on our rules. Um, it's kind of like a cheeky reverse anthropology thing. I like it. Uh, but we're finding governance, it's, it's almost non-existent 
in these fights and it's terrifying you know like one of our biggest rules is there's no collateral damage you know you don't do anything that's going to injure the crowd but there's so much of it innocent bystanders getting t- taken out and all these sorts of things yeah it's quite horrendous but what we're finding really horrendous is when there is some attempted governance it's usually by women but that women are absolutely prohibited in all 100 uh, cases women are absolutely prohibited from uh, participating as combatants that that's an absolute no-no and see it's the opposite if you look up indigenous fight videos most of those fight videos will be women <laughs> fighting you know so our, our women do fight and naturally human women do you know it's only these civilized women who are prevented from fighting they're one of the groups that are denied access to the agency of violence you know um so you see even uh, like men who look like big you know big melee a whole heap of men just struggling together furiously trying to kill each other like they're really going berserk and then a woman will start fighting off to the side and all the men on both sides will stop and join forces and just stop her from <laughs> we saw this time and time again the the only role a woman's allowed to perform is to sort of you know try and break the fight up and go don't touch him don't touch that sort of thing you know screaming from the sidelines you know the one yeah so that's 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 yielding some interesting results but the, it's the gendered nature of this um, this problem with, with violence and this imbalance that's kind of disturbing. And I do touch on that in the book. Like I feel, I, I feel that Western femininity is a, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of, you know, projected as this universal femininity, that this is what feminine is. But it's not. That's what any person who's completely confined and disempowered from their, for their whole life that's how they're going to act. They're going to mince around and they're going to throw like a girl. You know, this throw, indigenous women don't throw like a girl. They throw like a human, exactly the same way that men throw, you know. So, I mean, this, this kind of cloistered life where these poor women are, are taught to occupy less space than males and all the rest, you know, it, it, um, it, it ends up with women in this weakened state and they're basically at the mercy of, of anybody who's around. And it's... Um, I don't know. I, I I don't like that too much. Yeah, I would, you know, I word I use for that is overly domesticated. I mean it quite literally in the same yeah. way that a, a cow is kind of a stupid and weak version of a buffalo, right? Yeah. And yes, women were overly domestic, especially in the West. You know, think of the Victorian or early 20th century woman in particular, you know. Well, any civilization. Was it, I mean, it's the same with in Asia. Yeah, the foot bindings, things like that. Yeah. Middle East as well, you know, anywhere, anywhere civilization touches, you end up with this weird kind of uh, domestication of women that sort of that twisted and mutated into these weird, weakened, soft little things. And it's, um, I think it's, it's just an absolute crime against nature, against everything um, to do that to a being. So, yeah. And now we're doing it to the men, especially in the West particularly in the more affluent sections of the West to this thing that, you, you know, that we talked about before, the snowflakeism and super safety. And it's the same thing. It's, you know, taking the self-domestication one step further. And that means that you are now utterly dependent on civilization, right? You know, how many people do we know who just would have no chance at all to survive if the support apparatus came down. Well, I like to tease them when we get into talks, you know, I like to scare them a little bit about apocalyptic bullshit. And I say, dude, you know, what's going to happen to you if the apocalypse happens. 
you're going to end up as jerky smoked over a burning tire fire. That's it. But look, I mean, this is um, what happens to a domesticated being when they're thrown into a a wild situation or into just the reality of, of nature. That's when you get fight or flight. So fight or flight is not a natural condition for human. Like that's that's one of the the myths of primitivism that's projected back onto this Paleolithic past. That um, you know our entire culture, human culture, has evolved from fight or flight responses. You know because a tiger, right? Like you never know. You'd be walking along and a tiger will jump out and 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 get you. It's like ah no, not if you're a part of that system. You know, if you belong to that landscape and you're an integral part of it, you always know where the tigers are. You're never surprised by a tiger. You know, nobody in my community has ever been taken by a crocodile because, you know, we know where the crocodiles are. <laughs> it's, you know, you're, you're part of it. And there's always another, it's, it's never just fight or flight. You know, so I'm, so I'll be, I'm walking on, on the, I'm, I'm fishing for stingrays with a spear with my dad at a place called Eklit and we're walking along there and there's a sandbank. So we're up to about our ribs in the water and there's a sandbank dropping off in, into the dark and you can see the drag mark from the crocodile that's come down the beach and he's in there and he's a giant crocodile, like a big, very big old crocodile. So we know that he's somewhere along there. He's just resting on that bank and looking and we're walking meters away from the edge of that. Uh, in the water. And dad says, as long as you're not thinking about that crocodile, if you can have the discipline to know he's there, but not think about him at the point when you walk past him, he won't get you. <laughs> so and that's a hell of a meditation to do under pressure, I got to tell you. You know, and then, and then we're walking, a big tiger shark starts just speeding towards us like a flash of light out of nowhere. And, and, Dad's just straight up, boom, hits him on the nose with the spear and, and it turns and off it goes, you know. It's, there's, not, there's not fight or flight in that relation there with those predators. There's none of those things. There's just a profound knowingness, you know. And then he's trying to train me up to do the same thing. It's, it's, it's like a, I don't know, it should have been a training montage. It was like in Rocky or something. But he's, um, so there's a big flock of um, these stingrays and he's pushing them towards me and making them all run towards me, uh, swim really fast towards me and crash into my legs. And he says, if you panic and lift your foot, they'll sting you. <laughs> so you've got to stand. So he's making all these stingrays crash into my legs. Um to sort of train me up to have that that kind of fearlessness, you know, to overcome that and have that relation, come into relation with those things. And if you're in relation with that and in relation with your place and you're part of that complex system and your mind, not your brain, and we'll have to get into that next time, is extending out into that system, you're not going to be surprised by a tiger. So it's, it's flight or fight responses is a, I mean, I, I know that's a, a, the game theorists like to, base a lot of their theory in um, a lot of, you know, these these kind of projections backwards onto a Paleolithic past that they're imagining. But they're kind of imagining what, what it would be like for them now if they were dropped back there. They're not imagining what it would be like to actually be part of a landscape, to be part of a natural system and to be integral to that. And what kind of thinking, what kind of genius it would take to be able to hold all of that and 
for that to be the model of your thinking. Yeah, to the point about the, the genius, I mean, something that you allude to, you don't give the numbers, but you allude to it. It is known in physical anthropology that our Paleolithic ancestors had bigger brains than we did by about 10% because they had to deal with all this stuff, right? Frankly, we can get a little stupid, and we have, in the same way that a cow is a stupid form of buffalo. You know, a domesticated human is about 10% less brain capacity than Cro-Magnon man. Yeah. Well, it's not just the capacity, it's the connections. You've got trillions of potential neural connections, and we're only using about 15% of them at the moment, uh, if you're a genius. So, you know, um, if you can imagine how that brain would have evolved and what kind of thinking we would have had to have been doing to even grow that brain in the first place, then you're getting an idea of what um, Paleolithic and Neolithic lifestyles uh, were like. And that's what you need to base your theories and your models on. And you need to apply that complexity that way. Uh, because otherwise, you, you're grounding it in something that's not a reality. And it's, you're going to have a flawed uh, system coming out of that. Yeah, I think that's, there's a lot, to, a lot to that. And again, it comes back to this domestication. Well, I will, I will say, though, I have, to, I have to kick back on what you said a couple times in the book. Oh, we're only using 10% or 15% of our brain. That's actually not true. No, 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 of the neural connections, of the potential neural connections, not, not of the brain. You're using the whole brain all the time, yeah. All the time, right? But, of course, the way the brain works is by pruning the connections. We actually lose 50% of our connections between the age of about one and six, and that's how the brain is sculpted. So I'm not 100%. I don't believe that's particularly significant. Well, the, the new, nucleus, nucleus basalis uh, kind of dies off. We'll talk about that next time. I actually called that out as a specific thing to talk about, and I agree with you there, that modern education, so-called, what I call the sausage factory, does very bad things to the young brain. And again, back to this idea of self-domestication that civilization has been doing to us for 10,000 years, in the West at least, is one of my favorite quotes, which is, the sheep spends his whole life worrying about the wolf only to be eaten by the shepherd. That's it. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's it. All right, one last thing before we go here, and I thought about where to put this in, in my topic list because it is important to the rest of the story, but I didn't think it was good to have up front until we actually did a little bit of it, which is this concept in your culture of the yarn, a form of storytelling, but not just the storytelling. In American English, when you say you're telling a yarn, it's a little old-fashioned, first of all. Something my grandfather might have said, oh, I'm going to tell you about, you know, got this yarn here, uh, young feller. And it usually means long, humorous, and not very serious. It's, uh, it's an archaic Americanism. I suppose it came over from England somewhere along the line. But you use it in a very different way. Could you you know, just tell us a little bit about the art of yarning, I guess, is the way to ask the question. Yeah, well, look, I think it's, um, it, it, you know, comes back to this idea of a, a distributed sort of governance, distributed cognition, uh, all of this sort of stuff. It's just a modality that arises from that. So basically, uh, the truth and, and the big picture that you need to form um, of, of the context that you're in so that you can make accurate predictions moving forward, you know, so that you can make plans that are actually going to work in the real world. You have to have an aggregate 
of stories. So you can't just have one story dominating, you know, um, uh, you can't have one point of view, you know, winning the debate and coming out on top. And then we have to build everything from that model. You know, every different story, every person's story must be heard. And the truth lies in that aggregate of all those stories. You know, I, I, th I mean, a lot of people are doing that with with the kinds of data that they're, that they're gathering, you know, uh, in corporations now to help them out. They're getting all those micro yarns, I guess, um, and <laughs> putting them together and, and analyzing them to come up with a bigger picture. And the outliers in those, uh, in those yarns are important too, you know, like the ones that don't sort of go along with the consensus, you know, they, they actually come out of it as well. So a yarn is, is kind of almost a ritualized um, you know, conversation with a group of people and it's, it's quite dynamic and, you know, overlapping and, and there's lots of story, there's lots of acting things out, uh, drawing images in the air or on the ground, you know, basically with the goal of arriving at a loose consensus of what the reality is, you know, and, um, yeah, your decisions come out of that. There's usually food that's eaten or a, a cup of tea or something like that, or it's done around a, an activity of, you know, making something or, or whatever, but it happens like that. It's quite ritualized and um, good. But you see a lot of these silly things coming through. People talk about talking circles and yarning circles and all these things, and I'm sure you have it in the States too, you know, where they sit in a circle and go around clockwise with a bloody talking stick or something. You know what I mean? So everybody, because people, oh, oh, my God, you know, you know everybody has to have a voice. People have to be heard. You know, and that, that, that's one of the, the most annoying, whining things that annoys me about the era we're living in is this idea of being heard. I, I don't feel heard. And, you know, so everybody has to have their turn to speak, even if what they're saying is rubbish and they're going for way too long, probably like I'm doing now. And, you know, you get someone monologuing and then everyone has to sit politely and wait for them to finish. And then they pass the stick to the next person. And it goes clockwise too. And, and they kind of, I don't know, they're, they're kind of saying they're doing something indigenous or indigenized and that, you know, a, a circle is, you know, is, is more democratic and, and there's no hierarchies here. And that's bullshit. You basically turned a circle into a line. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a cue that's going around. It's, it's that Ouroboros, that snake eating its tail. I mean, a real, a real yarn is a lot more complex than that and actually, you know, gives rise to some very important outcomes and, yeah. Yeah, let me feed back to you something in my own experience that sounds a fair amount like the way you describe a yarn. You know, one of the passions of my life since I was 15 years old has been deer hunting. One of the things I've done with my best friends, and to this day, they're still my best friends, God damn it, 50 years later, right? And in the evening after a day's hunt, there's this very strange, complicated, beautiful, fulfilling conversation that happens amongst the hunters. And let's imagine in later day, a typical number of us that will be cooking together, eating together and drinking together. Let's not forget that maybe nine or 10 people in the fairly small little hunt camp. And we'll be telling what we saw during the day We'll be talking about where we saw deer, where they were coming from, where they were going to, what they were eating, what their behavior was like. And then, oh, by the way, we might also do a digression into what we were daydreaming about, right? Or what we're thinking about. And then, and to your point about 
it not being linear and everybody having their 10 minutes of time. I mean, it's people talking over each other, but there's also an interesting one is that some hunters are frankly better than other hunters, right? Some hunters are super observant. I'm thinking in our own little hunting circle. And so X, when X speaks, people listen because X really fucking knows deer, right? And if you want to get a deer, especially a big one, we're typically buck hunters, trophy hunters, this particular group, you listen to what X says and you'll learn more than what Y has to say. But Z, now this Z is the most amazing one. Z is a buffoon at one level in that he is not super observant of what's going on around him. He's not a great shot. He's got bad eyes, but he still gets his fair share of deer. But what is Z's superpower? Z is the repository of cultural memory. Z remembers every detail of every deer kill of this group ever, right? Typically as related by the hunter himself. You know, Z didn't observe all this stuff, but Z listens with great precision and interest to the stories as they're told, and he turns them into history. So in the middle of one of these wild, floating, talking over each other, meta conversations about deer hunting, there may be a story that's sufficiently similar, a piece of data that's sufficiently similar to say, hey, Z, tell us the story about when H shot that 10-point buck over on Big Buck Ridge, right? And then, sure enough, Z will tell the story in impeccable detail, and we'll have it more or less right every time. Mm. Well, see, so the, the wisdom of your group, the knowledge of your group, and the deer knowledge, it, it, it doesn't sit with any individual. It's held by the entire group and all the stories. Yep, absolutely. And then there's an outcome to it. You know, we decide where each of us are going to hunt the next day. That's it. And, you know, again, it makes a big difference because the, the deer run differently each year, depending on how the acorn crop is, how much grass there is, how much water, how cold it is. Is there a full moon or not? Is there snow on the ground? And so, and further, because we're trying to be safe, we want everyone to know where everybody else is. So this whole meta conversation actually has a result, which is at the end of the conversation, each one of the nine or 10 hunters has selected one of the named spots. And that's the other interesting thing. All these little spots where you hunt have names, right? You know, there's Big Buck, there's White Oak Flat, there's Morgue Hollow, there's The Knob, you know, it's funny. And then by the end of the night, it might go on for four or five hours. You know, people will, will call out, I'm going to The Knob, I'm going to Nashfield, I'm going here. And it's-, it's So your stories, your stories are maps as well. Yes, indeed. And we all hunt at the same place every time. So we have a deep, deep knowledge of place about this place where we hunt. See, I mean, everything that I write about in the book, you know, it's uh, one of the biggest reactions I get is, is how familiar people feel with, the, with these things, these indigenous ways that go, ah, I've done that or I've experienced that. And it's basically, that's just, it's your factory settings. Indigenous is just, is human baseline human who you are you know um you can be taken away from that and domesticated into some kind of shriveled ridiculous other kind of person but that at your base is who you are that was who you were born as every baby's born the same and it's born in that wild state and yeah and it's not until it gets sort of twisted and domesticated and ruined and broken that uh, it turns into something else this industrialized thing that we see before us now, that feedlot pig that we've become. People are familiar here, and I keep telling people, and the last message I'd say is, is don't be mining the margins for indigenous wisdom. You're not 
don't need to be looking for some exotic other. You know, you'll find a lot of it is right there um, with you. If you really do look into yourself, you'll, you'll find fragments of that. And each fragment contains the pattern of the whole. And the whole can be extrapolated out from, uh, from any fragment, I believe. So, you know, you, you find your own way and your own stories and your own activities and your own place there uh, would be my advice to people. I think that resonates true to me. And, you know, one of the things I took away from this book is that the best parts of my life are the ones that are the most resonant with the indigenous perspective. And while I've had these great peak experience, truthfully, most of Western civilization life I've led has been a little on the gray side, right? And if we're going to build a new civilization, why shouldn't we make it as wonderful as we can, right? Incorporate more of these deep, real human things. Well, with that, I'm going to, I think we're going to end it for today. But as we talked about, we're definitely coming back for a, for a part two to dig into a lot more in this extraordinarily rich book. We'll talk about woodworking. We'll talk about sand talk and the drawings that you've done and lots more. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll, we might be able to do, run some thought experiments and see if we can get that robot deer of yours working a bit better. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.